As we talk and we continue to share about who we are and what Christ has done and understanding ourselves through the book of Romans, uh, what an incredible study this has been, challenging for me, I'm sure for you as well in, 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 the, in the place that you're at, hearing it week after week in Romans, but it all ties together. It fits together and woven together beautifully if, uh, as, as we study this. And one of the things that I, I think we have to do a gut level honesty mirror check, if you will, is does, does, does the reality that I say that I am, um, is it the reality that I'm living? Or, or, or maybe you said like this, does my reality align with others' perceptions of me? Okay, not that everybody's perceptions are accurate, but they are their perceptions. As they see us, as they experience us, as we're on the job, does our Sunday align with our Monday? Think about it like that. Does how we act uh, here with the family of God, does it, is it complemented by the way we act with our family at home? Do we talk to each other the same? So is there alignment in our lives? Really kind of a, a, a burning question and how we deal with it. And I want to ask you maybe the same question, but ask it to you in a few different ways. Uh, what do others see when they see me? What do others see when they see you? Think about it like that. Uh, you know, there's cer- certain people that you know that when they walk into the room, or maybe maybe it's you, when you walk into the room, you own the, re- own the room, you own the space. You know those people, they have energy, they have excitement, they have enthusiasm, and the, the room lights up when they walk in. Now, there are those others out there in this life and world that they light up a room when they leave the room. Think about that. Uh, now, maybe that is you. I don't know. Maybe it's not you. Hopefully it's not you. But uh, what kind of reality do you see when other people see you or you see them? Think about that. What kind of smell? What kind of smell is it that, 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 that you see or you smell whenever you get close to somebody? I'm not talking about what kind of cologne, perfume did they wear, deodorant today or, or not. I'm not talking about that. Did they bathe anytime recently? Not talking about that. I'm talking about something that was actually introduced to me by, by somebody uh, uh, that was a part of Grace Point a number of years back. And um, he came to Grace Point because his company had moved him to the area because his company, what he did is he went into businesses, uh, retail stores or, or whatever, and he would do an analysis on the quality of the experience. And his job was to help companies and stores and retail experiences to have a better, better atmosphere, a better presence, a better smell, literally or maybe figuratively, that whenever you walked in, that your experience from the time you're in the parking lot to the time you're in the store to the time you have, you check out at the counter or whatever, was a positive smelling experience. And so he comes to Grace Point for the very first time and he says, I love the smell of Grace point. And I, I, to be honest, I didn't know what he meant. I mean, we put some new potpourri out, got new flowers out, something like that. He had to explain it to me. He said, no, that's what I do for a living is I measure the quality of a place based, and I use the metaphor of a smell. So when people encounter you, what smell do they smell? Is it sweet? Is it sour? Is it a Rotten, I don't know. What kind of smell do they smell when they smell you? What kind of feeling do they feel whenever you're coming around? 
uh, when you're in the room, when you're around, the, the, when you're in the conversation. Um, I think somebody put it to me like this. Again, these are just things I've picked up through life. There's the cringe factor. I like that phrase. Uh, whenever you encounter certain people, there's a cringe that comes with them, or maybe there's not a cringe that comes with them. Maybe that's a gut, and gut check for you. But when you see someone or someone sees you, let's make it more personal. When someone sees you, is there a cringe factor? One more, one more kind of metaphor, if you will. What do others think when they think about you? Uh, it, this was a, a friend in Calgary, Canada, who talked about how he m- pictured it like this. He said, when people are coming into your store, into your business, into your church, when they're coming in and you see them in the parking lot, do you go, oh yeah, I'm so glad to see them and I'm going to go open up the door for them and, and greet them as soon as they walk in the door? Or is it, I've got five minutes to get to the other side of the store or look really busy because I can't stand that person. You know, what kind of thoughts does an encounter with you have? Think about these. These are smells or feelings or, or thoughts that, 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 that come up with us. And this, this does tie into Romans chapter 12, which you can be finding that. Romans 12 is where we'll be because this is all about relationship experiences and Relationships are not just just static things. They're experiences. You have toxic relationships. Obviously, you don't want to have toxic relationships. You have positive, life-giving relationships. You have relationships that take life from you. What kind of relationship quality do you bring to the relationships that you have? Think about that. Now, you might not get an honest answer from yourself. You might get a very polluted answer from yourself. What kind of experiences, smells, or people thinking when they encounter you? Do you bring a, a life to the relationship or do you bring a take, a, a, a subtraction from the relationship? Now, how does this tie into Romans? Romans has been talking about this theology of God, what we believe about God, what we believe about man, and how, what we believe about how God relates to man. That's kind of how you could sum up the word theology, okay? It's what we believe about God, it's what God believes about us, it's what, how we believe about how we connect to God. And so for 11 chapters in Romans, all that he is doing is laying it out in a very systematic way. This is what we believe about God. This is what we believe about man. This is what we believe about how man relates to God. And so he's laying all that out. And then he comes to Romans 12. In Romans 12, he kind of turns the page. Because of what we believe about God, ourselves, and how we relate to God, because of that, now this is the impact on our lives. And one of those very big impacts on our life is how we relate with others, how we literally connect with others. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, the last five chapters of Romans, he's going to take relationships and talk about them in eight different sectors of relationships. A relationship we have with God, a relationship we have with others, a relationship we have with our enemies, the relationship that we have with government, the relationship we even have with the weak. There's so many different sectors of the relationships that are all affected by our relationship with God and how these all tie together. Uh, 
Last week we talked about our relationship with God and that we need to have a right-sized God. Some of us have a very boxed-sized, very domesticated God. We need to right-size our God, okay, and understand who He is. And then we need to right-size ourselves, and that means downsizing ourselves in light of who He is and presenting ourselves to God and getting that in order and then allowing God to transform our lives, making our lives right as God designed them to be. And that's that whole act of worship experience that we go through. But then immediately, almost without, well, in fact, without any transitional phrases, sentences, paragraph breaks, he starts talking about how we relate to each other, how we connect with each other, how we are bound to each other. And he's really talking to the church, if you will. He's talking to believers, followers of Christ, and how we are to be closely, compassionately connected on mission with God, closely, compassionately connected. And how does that happen? Because I think we've all gone to churches, as the guy who experienced Grace Point said, and we've smelt some pretty sour ranking churches and we've experienced some sweet smelling churches and, and bodies that we wouldn't want to be a part of and some that we would want to be a part of. So what do I need to bring to the relationship here in this room called Grace Point? What do I need to bring or what do you need to bring to have a sweet, properly smelling, connected, caring community with compassion for one another. And so let's talk about those, but let's read it from the big picture first. Let's read Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 3 to verse 8, and get the context of this. And then I want to talk about how we're going to have, or how he challenges us to have, an experience in relationships that's positive, connected, compassionate, and on mission. Here it is, verse 3. For by the grace given to me. Now he's going to use that phrase. Paul's going to use that phrase in chapter one. He's going to use it in chapter 12. He's going to use it in Ephesians chapter four. We'll come back to that phrase in a moment. His grace given to me. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as as in one body, we are many members, and members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So that's the community connected side there. Now he goes, having gifts, so each one of us, you understand we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now Paul just said, I pointed it out in verse Three, he talks about the grace given to him. Now he's talking about the grace given to us. Again, we're talking about community connectedness here. Let us use them. That's where we're living this out on mission. If you have prophecy, if that's your gift, well, in proportion to your faith, you need to prophesy. If service, then do it in serving. If teaches, if one who teaches, in his teaching. If one who exhorts, in his exhortation. If one who contributes, let him do it in generous spirit. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. When we look at this passage, he gives us kind of some guardrails, kind of some guidelines, kind of what, what a good relationship experience should look like. Whether it is a marriage or it is a home or it is a team or 
it's a church. What should other people feel, think, smell, taste when they get around us, when they experience us? So here, here, here are a couple of things that he mentions. Number one is you ought to, we ought to, they ought to experience humility. Humility. Now, this is a demonstration of a selfie-less life as we relate to others, okay? A selfie-less life. Now, I know that's my own little concoction of a word, and I think most of you all probably know what it means. We live in a selfie-focused world, okay? Where it's about the image that I have. It's about the brand management of myself. It's about how others perceive me online. It's about how I'm perceived on the job. It's about my personal um, achievements. It's, a, it's about, again, all these things, and it's about us. And humility doesn't start with us, it starts with others. Humility puts the other person in front of me and makes them bigger. The problem is, is that we have a culture, we have a society that pushes yourself to the front, pushes the ego to the front, and that is actually exacerbating the situation where we become almost intoxicated with ourselves. And I'll deal with that in a moment. But here's a, I was reading a book just yesterday and totally was not even thinking about this message, but I came to this one statement. I thought, oh, I've got to share that today. Psychiatrists or psychologists have suggested that most of us suffer from illusionary superiority. Now, think about that. Illusionary superiority. We think we're better than we actually are, okay? We think we're better than the average bear. We think that we're, 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 we're at the top, and, we, and if we don't get recognized at the top, then, then we have a problem with that. And they backed it up with some studies, independent, different universities that had done these studies. Let me, let me read and It will make sense probably. So you know, University of Nebraska did a study. And they found that. Now, every one of these studies, if you'll notice this, if you're a mathematician, you'll notice it. They're statistically impossible, okay? 94% rated themselves as above average relative to their peers. So basically, we all think we're better than everybody else, or we're at least above average, which that, again, says that we're, we're setting the bar. Anyway, it doesn't statistically work. Stanford University conducted a survey uh, of their MBA students and found that 87% related their academic performance to a top 50%. That I'm in the, I'm in the top, I should be at the top. And that everyone thinks that they should be at the top. That's why little Junior or little Waldo, when he doesn't get his A in class, mom and dad get mad at the teacher because teachers, and as you're finally at the grades right now, if you don't give out an A, you know you might hear from mama. And because they always think their kid deserves the A. A stunning 93% of Americans believe that they are above average drivers. Again, statistically, it's impossible to be the above average driver, 93% of us. But there's this illusionary of superiority that we don't think, no, 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 I'm all right. Everyone else is not all right. I'm the, I'm the top of the heap. I'm the top of the class. We have this, uh, again, inebriated uh, concept of ourselves sometimes. I think back to even, and this is, comes up as, as children. I think back to, to Caleb, our young little Caleb, who, who grew up and who wanted to be this inventor and creator. And he just kind of had this entrepreneurial bent in him. And he wanted to be the inventor of the first solar panel powered car. 
All right. He heard about fossil fuels going away. So he wanted to invent the solar panel powered car. Say that three times fast. And uh, he was going to be the first. And so I I was in some random store and found this little model of how somebody had invented a solar panel powered car. And so I thought, oh, this is so exciting. I want to take it home and show him that the one's already been made and you get to help make this little model and it's going to work for you. And he was so disappointed because somebody had already made the first solar panel powered car. And so he was disappointed over that. And I can remember another time, Lori and I could still remember this, this conversation having with Caleb whenever he realized that he, he wanted to be the first one to climb Mount Everest. And there was this guy named Hillary something, whatever, that had already climbed it. And that there were 4,000 other people that have already climbed uh, Mount Everest. And he was like, and literally his phrase, we can quote him to this day, well, there goes my glory. <laughs> you... <laughs> We live thinking that we are going to solve all the world's problems and we are the superior ones and that if I don't get first place and if I don't get the raise and if I don't get the promotion, then there's something wrong with the world. Not with me. Jesus turns it all upside down whenever he tells us, hey, listen, when you're loving yourself, just make sure you're loving your neighbor as much as you're loving yourself. Matthew 22. He turns the whole paradigm upside down. He says, hey, by the way, the first person, nah, he's not always going to be first. The first will be last and the last will be first. And oh, by the way, the son of man, the God who made it all, he did not come to be served. He actually came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he turns the whole paradigm of society upside down and he flips it up on his head and he says, this is a better way. And Paul then takes it and he explains it even further in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility. Count others as more significant than yourself. So Jesus said, listen, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul said, listen, if this is yourself, You need to see your neighbor as more important than yourself. He's raising the bar on it. More significant than yourself. Let each of you look uh, not only at his own interest, but also at the interest of others. When When do we lose the big picture? When we lose the big picture, we see only ourselves in the picture. Get that? See the big picture? See only ourselves in the picture. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. Humility, humility. He starts with humility, ends with humility. Jesus is the example of humility. And if we want to properly come into any relationship and be a church well-established, we need to have humility. In fact, that's exactly what Paul said here in this passage. And look at verse 3. This is for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with a sober judgment. I love the imagery of that. Don't be intoxicated, inebriated with yourself. Get a little sober. Keep your feet on the ground. Realize that God made you and he loves you, but he loves that person next to you as much as he loves you. And then what if we had the mind of Christ? We took on the mind of Christ. 
we might see other people even as more significant than ourselves. You want to know what a sweet-smelling relationship looks like? It's when a person takes the other person in the relationship and makes them bigger, more important than themselves. Call it a marriage. Call it a sibling rivalry. Call it a team at work. Call it a church here. If we have that level of relationship, it will create an aroma that you cannot you cannot not go to and be a part of. Humility, one person has said, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Think about that. Moses spent the first, breaking up his life into three segments, spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. Growing up in Pharaoh's house, ignoring God's rules, killing somebody whenever he thought injustice was being done, he took the law in his own hand. He thought he was somebody. He spent the next 40 years of his life realizing that he was a nobody wandering around in the desert. And then he spent the next 40 years of his life realizing he was a nobody that God could use and make a somebody. But he had to come at it with humility. Humility is what should mark our relationship and everyone should experience our humility. Number two, belonging. We realize the value of belonging, value of the community that we belong to, that I'm not an island, that I don't go it alone, that I need others. Now, I know that this may be really, 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 really hard and really, really countercultural to say that I need anything. Aren't I supposed to be strong? Aren't I supposed to do it myself? I don't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. No, 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 realize you can do that and you're going to fall. Eventually you're going to fall. You need to find your tribe. You need to be a part of that tribe. You need to, that is, what's your tribe? Where's your family? Where's your community? Find your tribe and be a part. There's tribes everywhere. You can't miss tribes. There are gamer tribes. I'm a Red Sox fan. And if you're a Red Sox fan, you're not a Yankees fan, Okay. In fact, you go to a Yankees-Red Sox game to see a fight, not to see a ball game. And because uh, so, that's just the way, that's the way they work. But I mean, baseball may not be, may be your thing, but if you, if you live in this area, you might like Cardinals versus the Cubbies or the Cubbies versus the Cardinals. And so you, you, you do the strange things like this. And so, you know, what, what's your tribe? Or you might be the Laurel versus the Yannis. Anybody know about that? Some high school kid in Georgia created some voice goofy thing, puts it on the web, May 15th, becomes this big thing. All right, how many of y'all, when you hear it, you hear Yanni? Raise your hand. How many of y'all, when you hear it, you hear Laurel? And some of y'all have no clue what I'm talking about. Raise your hand. All right, talk to the people next to you. I'm not even going to play the, the sample here. I'm going to leave you in suspense. You'll find it online. That's a bad example of a tribe, but that's a tribe. Let's talk about something of a deeper tribe. A tribe is where you don't go through life alone. Loners, loners, they're dangerous. They're reckless. They're isolated. Talked to a person after the first gathering, came up to me and said, I've been living alone. I have been isolated and I'm scared. There's a lot of people in this room right now Maybe you don't know how to find that connection. Maybe you you feel vulnerable when you find that connection. So you're just going to build up walls and kind of, I'll be safe inside my little, and if I fall apart, at least I'll fall apart inside my four walls. 
Proverbs 18.1 says, The one who isolates himself rebels against all sound wisdom, seeks his own desires, and rebels against all sound judgment. You, you, you isolate yourself. You're, gonna, you're setting yourself up for an imminent certain fall. The connected person, the connected person, the person who has a good tribe and a good community, a place is a place of belonging, is a place of authenticity, it's a place of transparency, it's a place of accountability. When you have that, you have something. And whenever you're a part, hopefully, of a church, hopefully you have a tribe of people that you belong to and that you're accountable and there's transparency and there's authenticity that happens inside of, of, of that little community. And so let's look at what, what Paul said here in verse 4. And I want you to notice this. For as in one body, okay, he's going to use a metaphor of a body. Now, this body is going to be something that he's going to stick with, that he's going to use I don't know, maybe eight or nine different times Paul's going to use this. He's going to use it in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He's going to use it in Ephesians. He's going to use it in Colossians. He uses it in Romans. And every time he's referring to the body, he's referring to the church. Okay? So hopefully you understand one body, but then these one, this one body has many members. Just like my body has many parts and, and parts that I see and parts that I don't see and parts that, that are sagging and parts that are, that are falling out and different parts of my body. But they all make up Mike McDaniel. And you take all of me and you put it together in this concoction and that's what you get when you get Mike McDaniel. But what is the body he's talking about here? The body is the church. And let's keep reading. Members. Don't let anybody tell you membership is not in the Bible. Maybe Kiwanis Club a membership model or social, whatever kind of club membership. But there's membership in the Bible. It just happens to be right here in Romans chapter 4 and 12 and following. He says, members and members of do not have the same function. So we, though many, uh, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And see, I realize, and I have to realize this, and you have to realize, we have to wake up one of these days and we have to go, okay, I can't do this alone. I need to belong. I need people in my life. I need others. And I don't know when you're going to wake up or what's going to happen to cause you to wake up, but the sooner you wake up, the sooner you'll save yourself against a lot of pain and suffering. We need one another. And he calls us to one another relationships. 57 different times in the New Testament, he calls us to one another relationships. I was in Little Rock this past week with about 45, maybe 50 different pastors, denominational leaders, um, social workers, and um, some agency heads and university uh, presidents and so forth. And I was speaking to them for a, a bit on this very topic of one another's. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. When these pastors and leaders and agency leaders and all this whatever muckety-mucks in the room, and they're realizing, because some of them told me afterwards, I don't have one another relationships. I'm going it alone. Guys and gals, I just warn you. And I call you to a family. I call you to find the one another's and belong to a community 
with one another. You need it. I need it. You need it. We all need it. Number three is activation. Is activation. We engage our shape. Now, you've heard us say around here why we exist. We exist for certain reasons. We exist to activate and arm our members, okay? We exist for transformative community. When we believe that you're part of this one another relationship, we think the next thing that needs to be right in there is that you need to be activated and armed. You need to be a part because the body is only a good and healthy as it is moving and active. Your body wasn't designed to be sedentary. Your body wasn't mined to play games all day, on the computer all day. It was meant to move. It was meant to sweat. It was meant to have an elevated heart rate. It was meant to exercise. It was meant to that. And when we do anything less than that, we're harming ourselves. The same it is when you talk about community. I need others, but here's what I also realize this. Others need me. Others need me. There's an interdependency that goes in play here. Nine different times in Romans alone, the more than any other book in the Bible are the one another's that I mentioned of the 57 one another's. There are nine of them in the book of Romans alone. He is calling us back. In the, in, listen, every one of those are between chapter 12 and chapter 15. You can find every one of them. The, the significance of that is everything about a relationship with God leads to a community with one another. Everything about a relationship with God leads to us serving and living in community with one another, walking with one another. Because I need you and you need me and we need each other and we cannot do it alone. If you look at verse 6, he says it like this. Having gifts that are differing according to the grace that is given to us. Now hang on to that phrase. The grace that is given to us. Again, I pointed this out earlier. In the very first verse we read today, Paul talks about the grace that was given to him. So Paul was fully aware of the grace that God had given him. Hey, by, 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 by the way, did you know that God's grace was given to you and in God's grace given to you, he gave you something. He gave you a gift. Now we call it in, the, in our circles, spiritual gifts. He gave you something. Why? 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 So that you could have a talent and a skill to make more money, to, to, to look good in society. To, why? why? He, he gave it so that you would use them. You would use them. It wouldn't be something you would keep for yourself. God gave you a gift so that you would use them. Peter said it like this, that you would employ them, that you would actually exercise with them. Again, when we say activate and arm our members for mission and ministry, that's what we're about. And so we, we're going to call you as believers in Christ to be activated activated and armed and serving one another's and being in this community and bringing your best self to the table. In fact, it's, a, it's, it's so much in the New Testament that even Jesus, when he was giving his parables in chapter 25 of Matthew, he talks about men having different talents. And he said, some people will go out and bury their talents and not use them. But Jesus comes on the backside and says, but they will be held accountable. So my question for you, God has given you talents. He's given you gifts. He's put you through life experiences. He's done so much in your life. Why, what, and how are you using them for the glory of God? Now, let's, let, there's a lots of lists out there, okay? 
1 Corinthians has a list. 1 Peter has a list. Ephesians 4 has a list. Romans 12 has a list. Real quickly, I want to read this list, okay? This is not an exhaustive list. None of the lists include all of the gifts, okay? Uh, so you have to read all the New Testament. It's very appropriate to get all of them and to understand them all. But here, beginning in, he tells us what to use them. If, if prophecy is your gift, well, then you use it in proportion to your faith. And again, we can break each one of these down. If service is our, uh, then it should be serving. And then give me an example of those. So you and I both probably know people in our life that they will give the shirt off their back to make sure everyone's needs are met. So a person in, in my life, in my circle, is a guy named Bob Coffey. Anybody know Bob? Raise, raise your hand. Bob is a over the top. He's not in the room today, so I'm just going to talk about him. Bob is over the top. We call him Bob the Builder. He's retired once, and he's come back, and he just kind of keeps... He works, he works in five hours, what it would take five days for other people to do. The guy's incredible. He will serve to no end. I would dare say he has the gift of service. See, what happens when you have one of these gifts and you use it, you get energy from it. You want to use it. You can't, you'll do anything because it was like, this is something that I have that I can bring and I just find out ways I can do it. So that's, I would say that would be his. So, and then one who teaches, well, what what are they to be doing? Well, they ought to be teaching. That's appropriate. So, I mean, if you're able to gather thoughts, if you're able to communicate them, if you're able to, to take them on a childlike level or a youth level or an adult level, you ought to find that avenue and you ought to be exercising that gift. And it ought to be affirmed in there. Okay? And it, it exhorts. That's exhortation, encouragement. Listen, we all need encouragers. In, in our first gathering is Brittany Brewer. And, and, uh, and she came to me one day and she said, Mike, I, I just, and if you know Brittany, you know she has the gift of encouragement. She's got more energy and with kids and everything. She's just bubbling over and all that kind of stuff. So she, she comes to me. She says, Mike, I have the gift of encouragement. How can I encourage someone? And just imagine somebody who has self-awareness and then says, hey, I'm ready to use my gift. And what am I supposed to do over here? Go, eh, I'm sorry, I don't know anybody that needs encouragement. No, I said, well, okay, well, here's somebody and here's how. And as you are, raise your right hand, repeat after me. I'm a minister of encouragement. You are sanctioned as a minister of encouragement. Go. And she has done that. When you know your gift, you use your gift. If, if, it's, if it contributes, the one who contributes, do it with generosity. I love people with a generous spirit. I love people with a serving spirit. I love people with a teaching spirit and gifts and are using them. The generosity, listen, the world goes because the church moves forward. The darkness is pushed back because of generosity. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Thank God for the generous people who give generously. Where there's a need, they find a need and they'll meet that need. It takes all of us, but thank God for the generosity. Of, of those who have that gift. The one who leads with zeal. Do it, man. Get out there in front. We need leaders in front, leading the way, seeing the future. The one who acts with mercy. Again, we could take each one of these and break them down. What am I to do? How am I to find my spiritual gift? We got this little tool online. You can go online, try to figure it out and all that kind of stuff. It's a really cool tool. We, we begged, still and borrowed it from another church. And so we've just made it our own. And so it's there. You could fill it out, take your time. It'll take a while. It's going to ask you a lot of internal questions, but it's going to raise your self-awareness, 
Hopefully you'll figure out what your spiritual gift is. But I'll tell you this, you'll not figure it out from taking a test. You need to explore and experiment. You need to just get in there, roll up your sleeves. Do I have the gift of service? Do I have the gift of teaching? Go try it. Go try the three-year-olds. What are they going to remember next week anyway? I mean, go, go, go. I mean, they'll, they'll love you. Uh, they'll remember some things. They'll remember your love. You know, you can mess up a story though, and they won't know if it came from Humpty Dumpty or the Bible. But uh, I mean, you, you give it to them as best you can. I'm not making light of that. I'm not making light of that. So get in there and explore and experiment with what, what, what maybe, maybe it might be your gift and, and, and get in there and, and play around. But let's talk about what shape stands for. It says it right up there. Let's talk about number one, spiritual gifts. What's your spiritual gifts? I never even heard of that. I don't even know what, what my spiritual gift is. Listen, this is something that happens when you become a believer that God gives you in from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, each one is given, each one, not, not some, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, isn't that awesome that each one, no one's left out, is given something from the Holy Spirit for the common good. It's not for yourself. It's for the common good. But also in Ephesians chapter 4, it's uh, verse 11 and 12, it says, it's also for the building up of the body. It's it's there. God gave it to you again, not just for yourself and self promotion, but it's there to help build up the body of Christ. Now I want us to all read this next verse out loud together. Ready? First Peter chapter four verse ten. Read it with me. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. One of the fifty-seven one another's is right there in First Peter. We need to take the gifts that God has given us and employ it, use it, invest it in the lives of other people. That's what spiritual gifts, that's the S. Let's talk about the heart. What stirs you? What moves you? What are you passionate about? Get on it. Figure out how you can bring glory to it. Not your glory, but God's glory to it. If it's a dark spot in this world, go to it and shine light into it. If it's discouragement, go to it and, sh- and bring encouragement to it. If it's a need of somebody, if it's an injustice in this world, go and take your heart and invest in it. Abilities is A. Again, you can have different abilities and different gifts, and I could elaborate on this all, all, all day long, but there was one guy who came to me as part of our church a number of years ago. He's now moved in, to Ohio. His name is Dan Stratman. Some of y'all know Dan. Remember Dan. But Dan came to me one time. We were out, actually out in the parking lot of the church. He said, Mike, I have this nerdy kind of gift. Okay, that's a weird way to introduce it, but well, I'd like to know what your nerdy kind of gift is. And he said, I like looking at numbers and spreadsheets and analyzing people. Okay. Well, I was working on my dissertation at the time. I need your help because I was analyzing people and looking at spreadsheets and numbers that make my eyes cross. And he did, and he helped me through that process. And hey, by the way, we want to know how healthy our church is. Would you help us understand how healthy our church is? And so we asked questions and there's of you, surveys of you. And guess what? This past week was talking to Dan Stratman again. He's still helping us, even though he lives in Ohio, to analyze number and assess how healthy are we as a church. So you can take your nerdy gifts and you can use them for the glory of God. Personality is P. What's your personality say about you? What do you say about you? I guess I'm, I, I'm not the out front person. I'm not the guy standing there. I can't stay on the stage. I can't be in the band. I, I'm more of the behind the scenes kind of person. 
I mean, the people out our front, they're the most important. They're the ones shaking hands at the door. They're the ones greeting people and giving them coffee. They're the ones loving on the, that's not me. I'm more of a, I'm more of a behind the scenes. Which is more important? Your hands that are out front, everybody can see them. Or your heart that's internal and is never seen. I promise you, you can live without your hands, but you can't live without your heart. Think about it. Sometimes the greatest personality may be the introvert behind the scenes serving back here. And it's not always the person out front. What's your personality say about how you can serve the Lord? And then, don't miss this one. I want to end on this one. Experience. Every one of us have experienced certain things in life. You've experienced highs and lows, ups and downs. Some of y'all are walking in it right now in the darkness of it all. I love it that uh, we have a great organization that we partner with, Loving Choices. And I love it how what they do to help speak into um, people in crisis moments, if you will, when they're trying to decide to terminate a life or not. And I've known, and we've had them in our church, of people that have volunteered there because they've told me their story that they went and they volunteered there because when they were a child or when they were a teenager, when they, were, they made a decision back here, that they've lived with shame for the rest of their life. And they want to step in front of people, somebody and say, hey, please listen, let me give you another option. And I love it how you don't waste a pain. Don't ever waste a pain. And I love it how Matt and Kathy Garner were in our first gathering and they were sitting right over there and I called them out and they said I could. I'm not sharing any of these stories with any, about, that anybody has, given me, has not already given me permission. And how both Matthew and Kathy have gone through their own divorce years and years back, but how for the past 13 years, they have been leading individuals through divorce recovery process. They lead our divorce recovery process. They have successfully remarried and been married for years now. And they, for 14 years, have been leading divorce recovery. I will now not marry anybody who's not gone, has been divorced, that's not gone through divorce recovery. Because I believe it is such a preventing measure for future divorces. And so what I'm trying to say is this. I love it that God, even though we have pain and we hate the pain and the pain was bad and all that kind of stuff. I love it how these people are not wasting the pains of their life. But they're finding ways to bring glory and to serve others through them. Because, why? Because this community needs this community. It needs a humble community. It needs a community where they can belong because I need, I need a community, but also a community that's activated because this community needs us taking ourselves fully out there and serving the community however we will. John chapter 13, Jesus ends uh, in my message with this, that we're to love one another. But it's not just loving one another. It's so that everybody else in the world will have validation and verification that this Jesus gig thing is legit. And so what I pray is this, is that when people rub up next to us, when they come close to us, when they see us coming, when they smell us, they will smell humility, a place of belonging, and a place that God can use me, even me, for His good and His glory. That's a community that will make a difference in this community. Would you bow your heads with me?
What is a pain of your life? A hurt, a loss. What is an ability that you have, a passion that you have that you could use for God? Call it nerdy, call it introverted, call it behind the scenes or call it out front, call it bold, call it brave initiative. But you just want to say, God, here I am. I'm available. I want to present myself humbly to you. I want to be not intoxicated with myself, but I want to think soberly about myself and realize that I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul said that so many times. I am what I am by the grace of God. Father God, you know our needs. You know where we're at. And you know, Lord, the aroma that we put off, the image that is seen when we are coming. But I pray, oh God, I pray that they see more of Jesus and less of us. They will know us by our love for one another. They will experience us by our love for one another. God, you are our cornerstone. You turned this whole paradigm upside down when you came humbly for us. You gave yourself fully for us. Lord, may we do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?